Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Idolatry, From a Golden Calf to Military Metaphysics, and is based upon the scripture readings in the lectionary for Sunday, October the 9th, 2005. Before Moses ever descended Mount Sinai with the two tablets etched with the Ten Commandments, the second of which reads, You shall make no idol for yourself, the Hebrews grew impatient and hectored his proxy Aaron, saying, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Exodus 32, verse 1. In this ancient story, so evocative with contemporary applications, the people bowed down to a golden calf, sacrificed to it, and even proclaimed national festivities to celebrate it. Idols lure us toward powerful illusions, misplaced hopes, unfounded hubris, seductive promises, in short, to false gods that come in all sizes and shapes. These gods promise much, but deliver little. We can idolize almost anything, career, race, gender, sex, wealth, age, or nation. Some of our gods are so petty and pathetic that they would be laughable if they were not so insidious and corrosive as when we imagine that the zip code of our address confers upon us status, that wearing clothes with logos validates our identity, or that wealth bestows security. The robust health of the advertising industry testifies to, to the power of these puny household gods. Other idolatries, though, are more global than personal, more public than private, more institutional than individual, and wreck far more violence upon humanity than our household gods. The most pernicious of these is what C. Wright Mills once described as a, quote, military metaphysic, end quote, which is a way of construing every national aspiration or international problem in distinctly military terms. This idol of war Chris Hedges observes in his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, is perhaps the most common and destructive form of idolatry, one that has left many religious institutions morally bankrupt. Hedges ought to know, having spent 20 years as a journalist covering wars in 50 countries. What else ought a person conclude after observing a Catholic priest in Guatemala bless weapons and soldiers? Pat Robertson call for the assassination of a head of state. Religious liberals romanticize the Marxist Sandinista government. Or Serbian Orthodox priests countenance ethnic cleansing. Orthodox, Evangelicals, Catholics, and liberal Christians have all invoked God to justify modern warfare's slaughterhouse and orgy of destruction as a means to secure, and even to expand, nationalistic ideals and self-interest. In his new book, The New American Militarism, 
Andrew Basevich desacralizes our idolatrous infatuation with military might, but he does so in a way that avoids the partisan cant of both the left and the right that belies so much discourse today. Basevich's personal experiences and professional expertise lend his book an air of authenticity that I found compelling. A veteran of Vietnam and sub subsequently a career officer, a graduate of West Point and later Princeton where he earned a PhD in history, director of Boston University's Center for International Relations, he describes himself as a cultural conservative who views mainstream liberalism with skepticism, but who also is a person whose disenchantment with what passes for mainstream conservatism embodied in the present Bush administration and its groupies is what he describes as almost absolute. Finally, he identifies himself as a conservative Catholic. Idolizing militarism, Basevich insists, is far more complex, broader, and deeper than scapegoating either political party, accusing people of malicious intent or dishonorable motives, demonizing ideological fanatics as conspirators, or replacing any given administration. Not merely the state or the government, but society at large is enthralled with all things military. Our military idolatry, Basevich believes, is now so comprehensive and beguiling that it pervades our national consciousness and perverts our national policies. We have normalized war, romanticized military life that formerly was deemed degrading and inhuman, measured our national greatness in terms of military superiority, and harbor naive, unlimited expectations about how waging war, long considered a tragic last resort that signaled failure, can further our national self-interests. Utilizing a military metaphysic to justify our misguided ambitions to recreate the world in our own image, with ideals that we imagine are universal, has taken about 30 years to emerge in its present form. It is this marriage between utopian ends and military means that Basevich wants to annul. How have we come to idolize military might with such uncritical devotion? He likens it to pollution, quote, the perhaps unintended but foreseeable byproduct of prior choices and decisions made without fully taking into account the full range of costs likely to be incurred. End quote. In successive chapters, he analyzes six elements of this toxic condition that combined in an incremental and cumulative fashion. After the humiliation of Vietnam, an unmitigated disaster in his view, the military set about to rehabilitate and reinvent itself, both in image and in substance. With the all-volunteer force, we move from a military comprised of citizen soldiers that were broadly representative of all society to a professional warrior caste that by design isolated itself from broader society and that by default employed a disproportionate percentage of enlistees from the lowest socioeconomic class. War-making was thus done for us by a few of us and not by all of us. Second, 
the rise of the neoconservative movement embraced American exceptionalism as our national end and superior coercive force as the means to franchise it around the globe. Myth-making about warfare sentimentalized, sanitized, and fictionalized war. The film Top Gun is only one example of a glittering new image of warfare. Fourth, without the wholehearted complicity of conservative evangelicalism, militarism would have been what Basevich calls quote-unquote inconceivable, a tragic irony when you consider that the most Christian nation on earth did far less to question this trend than many ostensibly secular nations. Fifth, during the years of nuclear proliferation and the fears of mutually assured destruction, what Basevich calls a priesthood of elite defense analysts pushed for what became known as the Revolution in Military Affairs, RMA. RMA pushed the idea of limited and more humane war by using game theory models and technological advances with euphemisms like clean or smart bombs. But here too, says Bashevich, our quote, exuberance created expectations that became increasingly uncoupled from reality, end quote, as the current Iraqi debacle demonstrates. Finally, despite knowing full well that dependence upon Arab oil made us vulnerable to the geopolitical maelstroms of that region, we have continued to treat the Persian Gulf as a cheap gas station. How to ensure our Arab oil supply, protect Saudi Arabia, and serve as Israel's most important protector has always constituted a squaring of the circle. Sorted and expedient self-interest our pursuit of happiness ever more expansively defined, was only later joined by more lofty rhetoric about exporting universal ideals like democracy and free markets, or rather, the latter have only been a misguided means to secure the former. In 1795, James Madison warned that, quote, of all the enemies of public liberty, War is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. End quote. Beyond such civic welfare, the text from Isaiah for this week reminds us that to understand God in terms of narrow nationalism secured by military violence is to create an idol in our own image. Rather, Isaiah writes, Yahweh is a God who longs to prepare a rich banquet for all people, to remove everything that separates all the nations, wipe away the tears of all faces, and, contrary to our idolatry of militarism, to swallow up death forever. Now for further reflection, here are four ideas. First, for further reading, perhaps see the book by Chris Hedges entitled War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. I have reviewed this book on our website at journeywithjesus.net. Second, try to find people who are both Christian believers and veterans of active duty with whom to discuss military idolatry. Third, can you think of examples of our culture's idolatry 
of a military metaphysic. And finally, Basevich quotes H.L. Mencken, quote, there is always a well-known solution to every human problem, neat, plausible, and wrong, end quote. How do we move beyond simplistic sloganeering of the left and right to address military idolatry? Notice, too, that in the very last part of his, of his book, Basevich offers ten suggestions. My book note for October 9th is about a book by J. Allen Hobson entitled Dreaming, an Introduction to the Science of Sleep, Oxford University Press, 2002, 168 pages. Forget Freud. Save any money you might have spent on the couches of his psychoanalytic priests who divine sophisticated interpretations of the content of your dreams. In this slender volume, Hobson, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School who specializes in sleep research, uses the latest in neurobiology to supersede what he considers the, quote, scientifically naive and flawed ideas, end quote, of the psychoanalytic tradition, of the ostensibly hidden meaning of dreams. Instead of chasing content analysis as the holy grail of dream theory, he proffers what he calls a formal analysis of dreams. Dream content varies from person to person, but their formal properties are virtually identical in every one. Emotional salience, perceptual or visual vividness, bizarre logic and cognition, and difficulty in recall. In the Freudian tradition, a person's dream is precisely not what the dreamer experiences it to be. Instead, it is an encoded, veiled, and mysterious message that must be decoded, for a price, of course. Dreams are unconscious or repressed desires that bubble up when the ego is asleep. There is, thus, a separation between the dreamer and the dream, the brain and the mind, the ego and the id. Hobson dismisses this Freudian analysis of dream content as a, quote, hopeless fantasy, end quote, and he admits that he wants to, quote, discredit Freud emphatically, end quote. To do this, he proposes the unapologetically reductionistic notion that the mental mind, physical brain, is one and the same thing, or, to put it differently, our minds are functional states of our brains. Dreaming, then, is nothing more or less than the spontaneous self-activation of the mind-brain during sleep. Why the brain self-activates just so, we do not know nor can we be sure about any purpose of such neurological functions, if there are any. The difference between waking and sleeping is one of brain chemistry, our mental state being a constantly negotiated compromise between the poles of waking sanity and dreaming madness. Thus, we do not dream because our unconscious wishes or drives would, if undisguised, wake us up, we dream because our brains are activated during sleep. Hobson uses a number of examples from his own dream journal to illustrate his points, along with sleep lab reports from science research and home-based reports. 
One feature that I especially enjoyed was the nine sidebar boxes that interact with common popular questions. Do animals dream? Probably. Do we dream in color? Yes. Do, do blind people see in their dreams? It depends. Are men's and women's dreams different? No. Hobson has also done a fine job avoiding academic jargon. He writes in an unusually accessible style. If Hobson is right that Freud is wrong, I find it comforting to know that any number of my bad dreams can be explained by simple brain chemistry rather than by foreboding, speculative, and expensive interpretations by so-called experts. My film review for October 9th is of a wonderful film entitled The Story of the Weeping Camel. Shot on location in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia, this unlikely but fascinating film documents the lives of a four-generation family of herders who lived together but all alone in tents. If we did not know this was planet Earth, the landscape might lead us to believe it was the moon. Wind, sand, rocks, sun, and the distant horizon of mountains are about all the eye can see. Tragedy strikes when an albino camel is born and the mother refuses to have anything to do with it. She spits at her baby, kicks it, flees from it, and refuses to let it nurse. This is a heart-rending natural tragedy, but for the desert dwellers it is a looming economic disaster. After trying every trick of the trade to reconcile mother and baby, the great-grandfather advises that they must call for a musician to perform an ancient traditional ritual to heal the camel. They do so by dispatching the two very young brothers, Dude and Ugna, who ride their camels alone across the desert wasteland some 30 miles to the nearest town. There they encounter the distractions of televisions and computers in a subplot of culture clash. But they succeed in their mission, and the rest of the film records the result. Breathtaking scenery and provocative ethnographic questions make this a very special documentary film. In Mongolian, with English subtitles. Finally, for poetry, we have posted The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 9th, 2005. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. 
I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.